Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith, and this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 25. No, 24. Oh. <laughs> No, no, wait, 25. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, it's 25. It's we're 25. half of a century old and uh, I'm a little bit dumber. We're having a quarter life crisis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. You guys, we've made it to 25. Thanks for sticking with us this long. Yes. How's your week, man? My week's been pretty good. I did a show at a whiskey distillery. Whiskey? Whiskey distillery last night. That was really fun. I'm doing nice, some nice. shows this weekend. Hell yeah, The dude. Laughing Skull. What about you? Uh, I'm getting ready to head out of town. I'm going to Huntsville, Alabama yeah. to do some shows. Which is crazy because you hear Huntsville, Alabama and you think, that probably is not fun, but they have it some of the fun. best shows. Yeah. I'm stoked. I got like a good deal on hotels. The show is good. And so I'm taking the whole family. We're going to go to the Space Center. Nice. I got free tickets to the Space Center. Dude, that's awesome. It's, it's weekends like this where it's all worth it. It's all worth <laughs> it. Oh, man. Let's get into some quick, quick. Quickies. Um, I guess I go first. Yeah, you're first. Okay. So this was a story that was on Reddit. It was shared to Reddit by a user named Shamed Shaming Shamer. <laughs> <laughs> shame, shame, know your name. Yeah, I um, like them already. So, uh, Her or him, I like them. Reddit group that shames people for like bad wedding etiquette. Okay. Yeah. And so her, she tells a story about how several years ago, a friend of hers asked her to be a bridesmaid in her wedding. And there were six of us plus the maid of honor. So seven total. And the bride had already picked out her dress and one for the maid of honor, a separate dress for all of the bridesmaids. Okay. Um, and so the dress was very nice, but they were told that the dress is $400 each, which that's a lot. It's dude. a lot of money. It's a lot for a wedding dress. But they were like, you know, oh, this sucks. They were college students and money was tight, but, you know, they loved their friend and they were like, okay, right. I'll do it. So the maid of honor said, hey, I know that this is a lot for you guys. I'm just going to go put it all on my credit card and you guys give me the money whenever you get a chance. Like you each give me $400 whenever you get a chance. Okay, that's generous. So, yeah. So one of the bridesmaids, the one telling the story actually wasn't able to go with everyone when they all went together to go pick up their dresses and yeah. try them on. So when she went to pick it up and she was by herself, a person working at the store stopped her and they're like, no, you have to pay for that dress. That'll be $200. <gasps> and she was like, $200? I thought these dresses were $400. And no, the dresses were actually $200. It turns out that the bride wanted this like really fancy expensive dress and her and her maid of honor came up with this plan to where they're like, well, why don't you tell everybody that their dresses are double the price and then you'll put that money towards your dress no so fucked that's so fucked and so like needless to say all of the bridesmaids backed out of the yeah. wedding and then she was just it says she lost two-thirds of the bridesmaids 
That's crazy. You would think she would lose all of them. I mean, probably one was like a sister or cousin. Who and they had, had to, to be in it. it. Yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. Her, her fiance's little sister. Man, you're right. <laughs> oh, but could you imagine? I would be so fucking pissed. So. I just want to say, if you are a young person who is going to get married, like I think once you've been through weddings with your friends and maybe you get married a little older, you realize like, first of all, your wedding is not the center of everybody else's universe. Yeah. And it's a big deal, but it's not a big deal. You know, like it's not the wedding that is the big deal. It's the marriage. And I know that sounds cliche, but it really is true. Like I'm, you know, we've been married 13 years and like I love, I loved our wedding and it was amazing. But I, if we had gotten married like at the Justice of Peace, it, it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. So like, just don't be a bitch. Don't be a bitch. Or a shithead. Like whatever, whoever. Or like, a criminal. Don't be a criminal. Because that's a fucking crime. Just remember that you may, like everybody likes to be like, it's the bride's prerogative, the bride, the bride, the bride. Just don't play into that because yeah. you're going to like ruin a lot of relationships. And I it's know. It's not worth it. It's, it's not worth not. it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to get on my soapbox. No, it's no. Like old I lady totally Sally. agree with you. I totally <laughs> agree with you. I think that no matter what, always treat everyone that's there to celebrate you yeah with respect yeah and like, that's, that's so fucking dirty that's so dirty yeah some dirty dog stuff i hope some wedding disasters happened on that oh. wedding day yeah i imagine that she's like a real nice person and that her marriage will be amazing um, <laughs> so i have an actually a quickie to counterbalance that okay because my quickie today is a write-in oh yay yeah I it's right in it's a love story from our listener fernando who also happens fernando. to be who happens to be my honorary third big brother yay yeah so he was uh, my two older brothers best friend in high school and they like the three of them hung out so much and they used to joke that like any guy that i brought into the house would like immediately leave because the three of them were going to stand across the door oh, no. <laughs> and just be like, what do you want with Sally? Um, but I love Fernando so much and I love that he listens to the podcast and that he wrote in. Um, he told us that earlier this week he'd been in a bad mood and wasn't oh. being like the best husband. And so even though he and his wife quickly made up, he decided to write in their love story as <gasps> penance. <laughs> okay. That's so sweet. So here is, I'm going to read this as he wrote it. Um, so it all started back in 2007. My best friend Mel started working at Central State University in Ohio. He was working with a young lady I had worked with previously, so it got us into a conversation about how he enjoyed his new coworkers. Out of nowhere, he started gushing over his new boss. He said, you'd really like Lakeisha. She's smart and nice, and you would definitely hit it off. Since I was happily married at the time, as was she, I thought it was odd that he was trying to set me up with his boss, but I brushed yeah, it off. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, but it was just like, oh, they just seem like, like maybe they'd be friends. I don't know. Oh, okay. Or maybe Mel saw the writing on the wall. So maybe. Okay, so years later, everyone had changed jobs a few times, and he put me down as a reference for a job at Wright State University, which is also in Ohio, I would be working. So Mel would be going back to work for his former boss, Lakeisha. And so she scheduled a call with Fernando, even though they, you know, she already knew Mel, but, but she had to check references. So uh, she called Fernando. They had a very long and enjoyable conversation. 
And the reference was only like a quarter of a time. They just like kind of chatted. And the problem was, although although I wasn't happily married anymore, as Fernando's saying, obviously, I was still married. So I didn't put a lot of stock into it and moved on with my life, never meeting her in person. A year later, my marriage finally fizzled out. After 13 years, I was single. And as a computer guy, I went to the dating apps. My short time on the dating apps is a dumb story all to itself. On eHarmony, I matched with a really nice lady that I got along with really well. She looked familiar, but I wasn't sure from where. On eHarmony, you use pseudonyms, and I later discovered that if you don't have a paid membership, you don't see photos. So just as we were hitting it off, she vanished. The young folks call it ghosting. (laughs) After that, I abandoned eHarmony. I didn't really want to get remarried anyway, especially because I was just months after getting divorced, and went back to Match.com. One day, I note that the same woman from eHarmony liked one of my photos. I was mad that she ghosted me, so I almost ignored it. But the last minute I reached out, I discovered that one, she didn't realize I was the guy from eHarmony, and two, she was Mel's boss. Oh my gosh. Since we worked at the same place, I invited Lakeisha out to lunch. I figured it was something safe and simple and we could go slow. We immediately hit it off and I was anxious to have another date. She told me she was about to leave town to meet her newborn nephew and then a girl's trip, but she promised to be in touch. I was super anxious, but she kept her word and we spoke nightly for several hours and I was absolutely smitten. When she got back into town, we went to a movie and it was an amazing time. I often wonder if I would have enjoyed the movie so much with different company. A couple of dates later, we told Mel. We then told everyone's kids. She has two and I have two. Had multiple hangouts with said kids and I knew she was the one. I started saving for a ring. Oh. A couple months into the courtship, she lost her job. I decided that I would take the step and propose to her to let her know that I loved her and would be with her through any adversity. We were married on May 16th, 2015, have been happily ever since. That's so awesome. Yeah. That's another fate story. It is another fate story. It's just meant to be. Yeah, I love it so much. I love oh I love Fernando gosh. and I love that he is happy in love and I haven't met Lakeisha, but I know she is like a wonderful woman. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yes, thank you. Yes, you guys writing your love stories. Everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Because we love them. We do. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen. Are you ready for a dumb, crazy story that I feel like is going to bring the mood down just a tad? Yeah. I know. We had like such a nice little love story and that's there. Nice love story. But you know what? I have another nice love story at the end. So it's like. Good. I mean, we just want you to, we want to get the lows. We want to get the highs. It's a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster. Of love. <laughs> oh, no. Um, okay. So this is the story of Nancy and Richard Lyon. Okay. And this is brought to you by this information I got from a investigation discovery television show uh-huh. called Fatal Vows. Okay. Oh, wow. Why? How would you find I all know, these awesome shows? I know. Because I bought the Amazon package. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's terrible because my kids will like go on Amazon and try to like, to, like watch cartoons and right. then they're like, what is this show called? How to Murder Your Husband? Like, there's a show called How to Murder Your Husband. I didn't write it. They just think that I'm, like, plotting all these horrible things. <laughs> they need to make an Amazon Kids channel. And then also ForensicFilesNow.com. Mm-hmm. And then there's a really amazing article written by Gail Golden. And for Texas Monthly, it's called The Killer Next Door. And this woman actually 
shared a duplex with this couple. So she was like front and center. All right, Gail Golden. Okay. It's a really great article. She's an amazing writer. Okay. Nancy Dillard and Richard Lyon met at Harvard in 1979. They both went to the Harvard Graduate School of Design where they studied landscaping and development together. And they both came from different backgrounds. She grew up in a very affluent community in Dallas called Highland Park. Okay. I know about it because I watched huh? Real Housewives of Dallas. Right. <laughs> and if women are not in a Highland Park, then they look down on them. Okay. You have to be in Highland Park. So I know it. (laughs) Yeah, I know about it. Her father was a real estate developer, and everyone in the town called him Big Daddy. Is that what? So everybody called him Big Daddy. And Richard grew up in a way more modest family in the suburbs of Connecticut. His father sold insurance and his mother was a teacher's aide. But even though they were from different backgrounds, they got along really well. And neighbors and colleagues like loved them. Everybody said that they just had the best attitudes and they were like yeah. just such sweet people and jovial and great to be around and really hard workers. Okay. Um, I feel like. The people are going to be wrong. Yeah, people will be. <laughs> so three years after they met, they decided to get married and they moved They moved back to her hometown, Park Cities, which in Highland Park is a neighborhood in that, okay. which is like oil-rich Dallas, Texas. Yeah. Like rich, rich, rich. I'm just imagining a lot of 10-gallon hats and big belt buckles. Big and, daddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lots of big daddies and women with like real high hair. Yeah, yeah. yes. It was a very insulated bubble. It was like very fancy. And while the different upbringing didn't bother them, it did bother some of their family. At the wedding, his parents were angry when Nancy's older brother, Bill Jr., little daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Bill Jr., when he jokingly toasted Richard at the rehearsal dinner, he called him a Yankee and a yard man. Like, oh, whatever. I don't know what a yard man is. So they were really hard workers. But they, you know, of course, took the help from Nancy's dad, you know, and all of his connections. Right. You know, because he's super rich. They were in, you know, landscaping. Yeah. That's such a weird thing to go to Harvard for. It is. Right? Well, is it like landscape architecture? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. So that's like planning people's gardens. Landscaping or... and development. So yeah. Yeah. So okay. that's like planning. Yeah. Planning big, like planning parks and... I mean, who am I? I didn't go to Harvard. <laughs> I know. I'm like... <laughs> Me either. Oh, I went to judge. I went to a, a little of... Georgia State. <laughs> So in 1982, Nancy accepted a management job with a longtime family of friend at uh, Trammell Crow's residential company. Apparently, that's a big company. I okay. don't know. No, no, um, no. She like quickly climbed the ladder, and mm-hmm. she was made partner within a year. Hmm, because of her right. Wow, beginning. she did quickly. Yeah. That's how it uh, usually works, right? You I get, know. You get an entry-level job and then your partner. <laughs> yeah, because of her hard, hard work at them. Uh-huh. Um, so in 1984, Big Daddy got Richard a job overseeing construction in one of his firm's projects. Yeah. They had really good jobs, but they were actually super humble and frugal at first. Like they, they actually never left there. They lived in a... 1100 square foot duplex they didn't like live in one of those big crazy Mm -hmm. homes and they like to spend nights at home and renting movies and they hung out in their yard like they weren't big flashy uh highland park people and then they had a daughter in 1986 her name's allison 
And of then course, um, her name's Allison. I mean, she was born in 1986. It was either Allison or Jennifer. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Allison. After a while of living in Highland Park, they started like doing everything else everybody else was doing. You know, they hired a full time nanny and uh-huh. they got their children on waiting lists for like the fancy preschools. And um, but they were never like super in your face materialist. Like they weren't yeah. driving Porsches or anything. But in 1988, the real estate boom had gone bust, and their work started to slow. And in January 1989, they had a second daughter named Anna, and she was born with a hip problem. And mm. so b- between like the cost of the medical bills and things just started to go south a little bit like the stresses were building up but in 1989 while everything seemed perfect to everyone on the outside behind closed doors you know things weren't great Um, nancy started to care more like wanted a better a bigger sense of control since everything was kind of going south so she wanted to keep up with the joneses and she cared more about what other people thought. I feel um, like that happens a lot when people have kids. Do you yeah. see that happen with couples where you're like, oh, they're so laid back. And then they have a kid. And so it's like all of a sudden they feel like their lives should look a certain way. Yeah. And so and it's like becomes like a reflection on like how you're parenting if you don't have the things or the kid isn't in the school. Like I saw it so much just when we lived in New York. And I mean, Max was so little then. I mean, he's still little. Yeah. You know, people would be already worried about getting their kid into preschool and then getting into kindergarten. And I mean, it is such like a rat race there that like, it's just crazy. People yeah. make themselves crazy over this stuff. Whereas before you had a kid, you you didn't care where you lived. Yeah. You, you said you would never be that person. And then... And that definitely sounds like what she was doing. Mm-hmm. Like she would uh, gout his suit and tie every morning and like lay it out for him, like, t- like tell him what to wear. And then she wouldn't let him mow his own lawn because she thought that like if people saw him out there doing yard work that they would think that they were poor. Oh. Which, like, I'm totally fine with our neighbors thinking my husband's poor. Right. Or we're poor, I mean. <laughs> like, just mowing the lawn. Anyway, between the stress of, like, balancing kids and careers and, like, all the stress of that, tensions were rising. Yeah. And then to make matters worse, Nancy's brother, Bill Jr., Big mm-hmm. Daddy Jr. Little Daddy. Uh, little Daddy. Um, he was actually an alcoholic and was staying at a rehab center in Tucson, Arizona. They had part of his treatment was they wanted the whole family to come and do like a family therapy session. Uh-huh. And while they were all sitting there doing the family therapy session, Nancy confessed that when her and her brother were younger, like young teens, that they would engage in sexual acts. <gasps> like they referred to it as like petting like inappropriate petting oh yeah and then they later said that oh it it was like more like they confused being intimate with each other with like emotional intimacy but still weird you know yeah like not wait you mean that they like but they were like they thought that you know being physical physical with each other would make them closer together yeah I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know either. I mean, it, yeah, just something tells like, me neither is fatal vows on that. <laughs> but it's icky. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, well, just to me, it's like sad because you think what's going on in their house or what's going on yeah. with those kids that they don't understand that that is a boundary you can't cross. Yeah. Or like what? Yeah. What happened? I don't and know. I just makes me sad. It does make me sad too. And apparently, like, the whole situation, her brother was, like, livid that she talked about it. Yeah. Richard was, like, 
like I can't even wrap my head around this yeah and then it made him he rather than like you know help her through the issues he was just like kind of shut her off and was like uh gross right like you're gross yeah and so he shut her off emotionally that must be really like must have been very shaming yeah for them and also then I mean both her husband and her brother like shamed her for Mm -hmm. it yeah she was just it sounds like she was just trying to help her brother work through right it is maybe a reason why you're drinking yeah we were doing heavy petting yeah and he's her older brother Um, yeah yeah so he um so Richard starts having an affair with a young blonde contractor named Anne Gaysford. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a colleague and someone who originally saw him as an older man that was like a mentor. Uh-huh. Um, but then, of course, it soon progressed into a full-on affair. And he was a v- apparently very sloppy with his affair. Like, he didn't try to hide it at all. And, you know, Nancy, who wanted to keep up with the Joneses, right. she was not cool with that. Yeah. So Nancy started to hear rumors about this affair because he was sloppy. And then she called him when he was on a business trip. And he was at a different, like, hotel than he said. And he she could hear Nancy... I'm sorry. Nancy could hear Anne in the background he would buy like cars for this woman and go to fancy restaurants and he gave her like a five thousand dollar cartier ring and so like they were like struggling yeah i know and so and she could see the statements yeah you know what i mean and she knew that these things were obviously not for her right and so one day like she had an ant problem a fire ant problem in her house like in the backyard and it suggested that maybe she called him over because that was a way to get him over to yeah. the house but she asked for his help she asked him to come over and help with the fire ant problem and he did and then they actually ended up like rekindling and she took him back but then a few weeks later um he moved out again and they went back and forth quite a bit for about a year like get back together break up and so and her friends and family all wanted her to be done with him yeah but nancy would tell them and quote i know the real richard this isn't like him he's a family man he's sick but i know he'll come around mm-hmm. the stress of all of this back and forth just starts to take its toll on nancy she starts to become like super sad and depressed and she loses a lot of weight she had other stress in her life nancy's former boss at crow development his name's david bagwell he was being sued by the company because he misappropriated seven hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and nancy was a potential witness yeah and so she had received a death threat by him in 1989 saying like you better not testify and then you know between that and richard and And her brother brother, like everything was just too much and so she was like i can't i have to take a stress factor out so i need a divorce so she wrote to richard and asked him for a divorce and he says okay Mm -hmm. and then she said and i want full custody of the kids and he says okay and then she says, well, and I'm also changing the life insurance policy so the kids get everything instead of you. Yeah. And then he's like, well, wait a second. And so then, of course, oh, no. all of a sudden, he's like, hold up. Maybe let's try again. So we start to, like, reconnect with Nancy uh-huh. and start kissing her ass and leaving her, like, sweet letters and gifts. And they start going out on dates. And Nancy, you know, wants it to work because divorce in her eyes was a failure and she didn't want to give up. Yeah. So she decides she's going to give into it and stay with them. Even though... Um, <laughs> 
she was working on her marriage and there should be less of a stress there because they were together. Her body is still declining. Like he took her on a ski trip and apparently she was so sick that she was vomiting the entire time while she was on the ski trip. Oh, no. In the meantime, you know, Richard also had told his lawyer to stop the divorce. I don't want a divorce. And then uh-huh. he broke things off with Anne and he lied to her and told her that Nancy was suffering from a rare blood disease. And that's why he needed to stay with Nancy. Okay. Not like, oh, because she's my wife. Because she's my wife and we we're what having an affair fuck? and we have children. And yeah. We work on it. So in January 1991, Nancy becomes so sick that she cannot stop vomiting um richard rushed her to the hospital and at 1:50 a.m nancy was checked into the presbyterian hospital's emergency room and the doctor tried several medications to stop her from vomiting and by 8 a.m that day she was wasn't any better and she was convulsing and her pulse was racing uh it says racing at 144 and her blood pressure had dropped from to 50 over 18 which oh god that's like it's super like, low. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're basically your heart's barely beating. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So when she was transferred to the ICU, doctors at first thought that she had toxic shock syndrome because oh, for a week she was complaining about vaginal itch- itching. Uh-huh. And so she had started taking these like Zovirax capsules that were for apparent lesions on her cervix. But she didn't like toxic shock syndrome comes with a rash and high fever. And those are two things that she didn't have. She also told the doctors that she had eaten old pasta the night before. But they're like, no, it can't be like this isn't doesn't look like food poisoning either. Right, And you've been sick for forever. Yeah. Yeah. And so the doctors started to test her for infections. And she was assigned to one doctor. His name was Dr. Ali Bagheri. You know, when he could see that all of her symptoms and that her, she had like really high liver en- enzymes, which were abnormal. So he ordered all these additional testings. And when Dr. Bagheri told Richard that they're looking for everything, including, he's like, don't worry, we're looking into right, everything we're not gonna, for your we're wife. We're not going to give up until. Yeah, yeah, we're looking at toxic metals. We're looking for arsenic. And apparently as soon as he said arsenic, Richard was like what why why would you do that mm-hmm. what an idiot dude this guy's dumb and so nancy's dad big daddy um <laughs> goes and finds the doctor to, and he tells that dr bagheri like listen nancy and richard are not well like they're they're not yeah. in a happy marriage they're one time they were divorcing because he was cheating on her and richard actually gifted nancy a bottle of wine and it made her very sick after she drank it. Am I being poisoned, Sally? Yes. I'm being poisoned. I, oh. I can now not drink red wine. All Someone's trying point to kill me. To Zach. <laughs> oh my God. Zach, if you're listening, it's all on we're this on podcast. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I, like, can I tell you something? Yes. I have started not being able to drink red wine. Does your face get really red and flushed? And no, my get head, red? like, I get an immediate headache. It's just, I think From, like, a sip. We're getting old, man. I thought that I was, I thought I had, I was telling Ben, I'm like, I had a headache the entire, my entire weekend that I went away for my birthday. Oh, no. And then I was like, I, and I got it when I got home. And then I realized it's because I was drinking red wine, like, constantly. Yeah. And I, because I realized, I was like, okay, I was fine one day. And then I took a, had, like, a half a glass of wine when I got home. And it, immediately immediate like it's just like one part of my head i don't know if it's the tannins or what i think it's tannins yeah like because my friend i have a couple of friends 
And they're all affected also by tea. Like tea, like every 10th couple make me vomit, but I still drink tea anyway because right. I'm an idiot. <laughs> but I, like every once in a while I'll get a cup and I immediately throw up. But it, but it gets worse and worse as I get older. And yeah. it's I think it's a tannin allergy, oh, which man. is in wine and it's in black tea. Well, that's a, such a bummer because I is like a both bummer. of those things. If someone could make a tannin-free wine. Yeah. We would try it. We would try it. We would try it live on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so send it away. <laughs> so anyway, um, so Dr. Bagheri then calls the medical examiner's office and tells him, like, he, I have a patient here, and I'm pretty sure there's foul play. Yeah. But sadly, just a few hours later, after he makes that phone call, on January 14, 1991, 37-year-old Nancy Dillard Lyons' heart stops, and she passes away. I was, like, hoping against hope, even though no. the name of that book was The Murderer Next Door. I know. I was like, maybe this is another one where they found the poison and then she survived no unfortunately not and the cause of big daddy knew i know big daddy knew (sighs) big daddy so it's officially declared that the cause of death is death by a septic shock but everyone knows like no Mm -hmm. there's more here there's definitely more so on january 15th the day after nancy's death an autopsy was conducted by the dallas county medical examiner's office and before they got the results back the police told the dillards big daddy and his wife Uh and mama and bill jr yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) to keep up appearances with richard like pretend that everything's fine go to his house like because they're investigating him and they're like Imagine if you know that somebody murdered your child yeah. and then you're like having to go and bring pur- him muffins and yeah. say so sorry for your loss. Yeah. So they're going to his house and like. And does he have the kids? Yes. Ugh. So they're going to his house and seeing if he's okay. Do you need anything? They had to watch him at the funeral. Like it's sitting there. And so they're just acting like everything's normal. But behind the scenes, Richard is already getting things in order to try to collect the life insurance. But when he looks into it, he sees that she actually did go through with changing the life insurance over to the kids. So he gets nothing. Nothing. (laughs) And so... The police at this point are obviously, you know, looking into what happened and questioning Dr. Bagheri also. Yeah. And Dr. Bagheri tells them that the day before she died, apparently he had a very busy day at work and he had been meaning to get there like all day, but he didn't get there until late at night uh-huh. And to because he needed to be alone with her. Like he needed Richard to not be in the room. So he asked her a bunch of questions and she told him that she was taking these unmarked white pills that her husband had been giving her that they were, and he told her that they were vitamins. No. And hey guys, don't take unmarked pills. Don't take unmarked from pills from anyone. anyone. She also tells him that there was a time that went to the movies and he went and bought her a soda and that when she took a sip, it tasted funny and there was white stuff floating at the top. No. And that he was actually angry that she wasted the soda. Yeah. What the fuck? So the tests come back and it is positive for arsenic. Why? Yep. I don't want to. I, don't I know. know. I don't know what the best way to kill someone is. I don't want to know. I'm not going to. Yeah. But it just seems like you're going to get found out, dude. You're going to get found know. out because they're going to test. This fucking guy. Okay. So the levels were like totally through the roof 
like there was it was in every organ of her body like he had been feeding her this for forever yeah um so the detective um his name was don s ortega of the dallas police department's homicide unit went and met with nancy's father and told her like listen it came back arsenic but you know this is gonna take a little bit for us to prove that he had arsenic right and so the dillard's big daddy uh told them <laughs> that in 1990 Nancy had seen a canceled check from Richard to a general laboratory supply, which is a chemical distributor in Pasadena, uh-huh. because she was worried that Richard was using drugs. And so she like was like, so she saw, and so she was like, what is this? Why is he ordering these chemicals? Is he on drugs? And she had mentioned the laboratory name to her sister, you know, when she was telling her about right. this. Ortega, the detective, subpoenaed the bank records for Richard's accounts and then asked the general labs to search their files. And within a month, he got receipts showing that Robert had bought several toxic chemicals in powdered form, including barium carbonate, which is rat poison, and sodium nitrofericyanide. Cyanide. And he bought them from the supplier in 1990, but it didn't show an arsenic purchase. So okay. they needed to show arsenic. So unfortunately, they still hadn't arrested him. Right. So this was now late February. He was still living his life. Uh, but they were keeping an eye on him. And apparently, like, one day Richard tells the Dillards that he was going fishing in Mexico with a friend named John, and he left his daughters with Bill Jr.'s family. And while he was gone, the detective looked at the airline records and saw that he didn't go to Mexico. He went to Puerto Vallarta with the Anne Gaysford, the Anne. woman he was having Gaysford, the woman he was having the affair with. And so he lied and he was with this woman. So there's motive, right? And so there. Also, God, would you continue an affair with someone who's accused of his wife's murder? No. And when you read the article that was from the woman that lived in the same duplex as them, she said that she saw this woman having dinner at Richard's house like soon after Nancy passed away. And then she saw, it said that she saw her leaving the duplex one night with uh, one morning with an overnight bag. Like she had stayed the night. Yeah. What a fucking sloppy idiot. And so anyway, I just can't imagine any man like I'm remember my story from last week, which we just recorded. Um, (laughs) So I'm like, remember my story that I I think I remember. You think you remember maybe like vaguely? Mm -hmm. Uh, But we'll I mean, we will have posted the pictures on Instagram. But you hear the story about like, you know, she she went after her brother, her husband's brother. And you're just like, well, he must be like really amazing. And then you see the pictures of these people and you're like, I mean, what? Why? 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 I don't know. I actually haven't seen pictures yet of this woman, but we're going to look at I'm him. wondering about this guy. I'm like, is he so amazing? Richard? That- yeah, Richard. He's a, he's a handsome guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, is he amazing enough that no. you get with him like after his wife is no, dead? No, never. Never. It's crazy. So as soon as he got back from his trip, as soon as he got to the airport, they picked him up for questioning. Okay. He spent five hours with the detective being questioned. And apparently, like, during his questioning, he was super calm and his eye contact, like, never wavered. And Ortega knew that, so since Nancy's death, Richard hadn't once called the medical examiner's office to ask about the autopsy. Like, he never asked. And so when he told Richard that Nancy had been poisoned, he said that Richard like barely reacted. He just remained totally calm. He didn't say anything and didn't appear upset. Like, wouldn't you be like, really? Oh my God, my 
wife was murdered? What, what? are you talking about? Like, yeah. he was just like, uh-huh, yeah. And then oh, so... Sure, sure, sure. That's a normal way to die. And then he said that he asked Richard if he had ever had any poisons at the duplex. And Richard says, like, yeah, we have Amdra, which is an ant killer, and Vapom, and an herbicide. They're all in the garage. And then the detective was like, yeah, well, have you ever purchased any chemicals? Mm-hmm. And Richard was like, no. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, we have the receipts. Do you know what I mean? You idiots. Idiots. So they arrested him on the spot. And all of the friends and neighbors and acquaintances just like couldn't believe that this perfect couple. Yeah. Even the neighbor was like, I didn't want to believe that it was him. I just couldn't believe it. He played a guitar and he sang songs to my children. And we were all like one big family. And I went, she went to the watch the trial because she wanted so badly for him to be proven innocent. Right. Because she couldn't believe it so anyway so richard lawyers up of course and his lawyer is a man named dan guthrie who's a former assistant united states attorney and he's one of those like schmormy lawyers right (laughs) and so he does this whole sensational thing where he like holds his press conference and he's like uh before this trial's over you're gonna see that there's this whole like clue cast of suspects that could have who done it's gonna be a real who done it he says Like, who the fuck says that? Anyway, so he, so they they were going to prove that it's all these other people, but it's definitely not Richard. Yeah. So the first person that they suggest could have poisoned Nancy was her brother. Right. They produced this diary that was supposedly Nancy's diary um, saying that she was scared of her brother because she revealed their secret and then, and that it went into like more sexual detail and it does that he re- repeatedly assaulted her. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't this weird little kid, the what do we do? It was this more right. like peated. Yeah. Yeah. And then they said that, or it could be Nancy's former boss, David Bagwell, who during. Oh, right. Well, yeah. He did threaten her. He did threaten her. Yeah. Um, you know, for, because she was going to testify. And then uh, the third suspect that they say that it could be is their nanny, Lynn Pease Woods was her name. They said that maybe she was obsessed with her children and she wanted to keep them for herself. Okay. Like, okay, this nice lady that's been taking care of your kids, you fuck faces. Or fuck face, I should say. Anyway, so (laughs) last, um, they suggested that maybe she was taking it herself. Maybe she just wanted sympathy and she wanted him to come home. Uh-huh. Yeah, arsenic. Right. You would take the most painful poison there is and die a slow, horrible death for love. Right, right, right. Just and for attention. attention. And they show a receipt showing that Nancy bought arsenic when she was trying to kill the fire ants. So it's a receipt that's in Nancy's name. Yeah. Buying arsenic. You know, the court's like, oh my gosh. So, but then when they interviewed, another thing too that, kind of supported this a little bit was when they interviewed the nanny asking if there were fire ants because they wanted to support their theory the nanny was like no there's no i didn't see any fire ants and yeah. like see there were no fire ants and so it's she like bought arsenic to dude fire ants there's like six in a hole they were suggesting that this was some type of gone girl situation like she killed herself and was trying to frame him right because for her he had, murder yeah because he had had the affair right like no woman just runs off yeah like women don't just leave their lives usually yeah (laughs) like their case was they showed that you know richard lied to the police they Mm -hmm. showed the autopsy report they showed that the health pills that she had were packed with barium carbonate rat poison they showed the 
paper trail of the chemical purchases that he had purchased. Mm -hmm. And then they also had a testimony of a man who in January 1991 repainted and cleaned the apartment that Richard lived in when he was separated with Nancy. And he testified that while he was cleaning out the unit, he found several empty clear gelatin capsules and they were the same as those that were uh, the tainted health pills that she took. Okay. Because they were able to compare it to like what she had at her house. Yeah. And then there was also testimony from the tenant who lived there after Richard and said that while he was cleaning bathroom cabinet, he found a prescription bottle with Nancy's name on it. So it was like he was taking her prescription pills and filling them with stuff. And along with the pills inside were two antibiotic capsules laced with sodium nitrofericyanide, which was another of one of the the poisons poisons that he bought. So boom, right there. Yeah. Like guilty. And then also (laughs) money was a huge motive because Nancy was worth $1.2 million, including $500,000 from her life insurance. But, you know, she changed it, but he didn't know that. Good for her. Um, And he tried to produce a type's document showing that she had changed it back in his name. But when they analyzed it, they saw that it was a forgery. Yeah. Idiot. And then they were able to prove that the receipt that showing that Nancy had purchased the ant poison, they interviewed someone that worked at the company. And he was like, yeah, these are not from us. Like, these are typed out receipts and we only handwrite our receipts. We don't type them out. So, yeah. It was also forged. Yeah. Idiots. And then for the diary that they had showing that Nancy had said that her brother was a threat, Uh um, they brought in Hartford R. Kittle, who was a retired document examiner from the FBI. And while there's, and then apparently Richard and Nancy had very similar very similar handwriting. It's something that they used to actually try to perfect because they worked on a lot of projects together. And so they, that was how he forged these things was because they had um, similar handwriting, similar handwriting, but apparently there were some things that he left that were not right. You know what I mean? And then the handwriting expert was able to say that, you know, his ends are angular and she like loops her G's and things like that. And he pointed out the differences and was like, yeah, no, they look similar, their handwriting, but this is obviously not her handwriting. So idiot. Idiot. So that was proved to be forgery also. So after a three-week trial and after three hours of jury deliberation, just three hours. That's so quick. I know. A jury convicted him of first-degree murder, and he began a life sentence at the WF Ramsey Unit Prison Farm at the age of 34. So he was 34. And he became eligible for parole 15 years later in 2006, but it was rejected. Yeah. Fuck face. (laughs) On February 3rd, 2016, they denied him again. And the reasons that they denied him was that they cited elements of brutality and violence, I guess, while he's in jail, and a conscious selection of victims' vulnerability. Yeah. So, Yeah. So his next chance for parole will come in 2021 when he's 64. And in the meantime, he still denies that he ever murdered his wife. But I think we know the truth. Wow, that is a nuts story. I know. And it's just so scary because it's like you don't ever know anybody. I know. <laughs> and like we've done many of these poisoning stories. And yeah. they just never want to believe that it's their husband. Right. Well, yeah, because how can you imagine 
Because it's not just like somebody got angry and shot someone else. It's you thought about it. You bought things and you're so doing it like calculated. over time, like a yeah. little bit and a little bit over time. It's not just one time that you snapped. It is deliberate and out. just the like evil that that takes yeah. to be like, I'm giving you this pill because you trust me. To make me. you feel better. Yeah. And you're yeah. taking it because you would never think that I would do that. Like that must be such like a power trip for people like that. Oh, it's God. so sickening. I know. Um, don't don't poison guys you guys just don't poison just don't poison it's it's no good okay don't hey jen hey sally are you ready for a love story yes i've got a cute one you know how we love when people have adorable stories about how they met yes well, this is cute. one of those that's a why they're cute. called meet cute a meet cute Emily and Cameron Coleman have a really cute story of how they met. They actually say that the fact that they both have bladder extrophy is what they have to think for everything good in their life. Does that mean they pee their pants? No, it actually... So bladder extrophy occurs in one of every 50,000 births. And it happens when the skin on the baby's lower abdomen doesn't form properly. So the bladder is on the outside. Oh. And they are unable to store, it's unable to store urine. So it's very, I mean, it's it's really, really dangerous. And a wow. lot of times babies won't even survive in utero. So both Emily and Cameron underwent surgery soon after their births to help. And then when they were four, they were scheduled to have what's called a bladder neck reconstruction, which would help them, it would widen their bladders and help like fortify so they could like hold urine and the condition is so rare so they both sought help from john hopkins hospital in baltimore and even though emily was from wisconsin and cameron was from ohio they both ended up there at the same time when they were four years old so in 1995 both of their families spent two months in baltimore for their kids to have this surgery and doctors kind of paired them together because they were like here's two little kids they're going through the same thing and they need a buddy And so what happened, what the surgery was during the operation, the doctors broke their hip bones (gasps) and then placed them closer together and then helped their their bladders, like reform their bladders. I know. So while they were healing, they had to, they put steel pins in their hips to like make their bones set properly. And they had to be really careful about how they were moved. And so for like a week, they could only lay. They have these pictures of them in these two red wagons laying the two of them and their moms wheeled them all around Baltimore in these little wagons together. And so they spent two weeks in the hospital healing and then they were moved to the Ronald McDonald house for six weeks to recover. So it was such like an amazing thing for these two little kids to have someone who was going through the same thing. But it was like just as important for Emily's mom, Sarah, and dad, Todd, to meet Cameron's parents, Lisa and Kevin. And like they really bonded. The families really bonded because I can't imagine going through that with your kid. No. And and so to have another family doing the no going through the exact same thing would be amazing. So Emily and Cameron would play Nintendo and they would run around and cause mischief and they were just being four-year-olds together. And one day he snuck her into there's this big pile of teddy bears, and they went behind the teddy bear and he kissed, he kissed her while their Aww, parents were in the other how room. Cute. And Emily says it felt really special but of course I had no idea that my first kiss would turn into my husband oh so after two weeks in the hospital and six weeks at the Ronald McDonald house Emily and Cameron returned to their homes in Ohio and Wisconsin Emily never forgot Cameron and so in 2004 which is like nine years later they're both in middle school 
And she asked her mom if she still had Cameron's family's phone number. And she said, I always remember that little boy. And I asked my mom if he was, she was still in contact with his family. Her mom actually called first because she was so nervous. And she was like, can you call him, like talk to his mom and see if he Aww. wants to talk to me? And so the two started emailing and then they started talking on the phone and they could like really, really relate to each other because they both had this birth defect yeah. and they were gone through the same thing. And they're both in middle school and it's like... I mean, it's such like a fragile time. So Emily actually had only had very, had had very few health problems after her operation. Like she had had a couple of minor reconstructions to normalize the scars. And other than like her bladder is kind of small. And so she has to pee a lot. She hasn't really had any problems since then, but Cameron's bladder actually tore. And so he had to have subsequent surgeries. And so they just really like bonded over this I mean, over just their shared experience, life experience, and that is hardly anybody else could relate to as like seventh and eighth graders. So Aww. for two years, they kept in touch. And then on Memorial Day of 2006, no, 2006, 2006, uh, 2006, the year I got married, Emily surprised Cameron with a visit. And it was the first time they had met since their hospital stay. So they're like 14 at this oh, point. Oh, cute. And they had been racking up some hefty phone bills with all their calls to each other. And she said, to be honest, when we met, it was quite awkward at first, but it only lasted for about 10 minutes. It was fine. We were old friends and it was like no no time had passed. And it was everything I had hoped it to be. And then they started dating Aww. very shortly afterwards. So they late, dated long distance through high school and then in 2012, six years later, Emily moved to Ohio to be with Cameron. And just a few months later in November, Cameron asked Emily to marry him. She says he got down on one knee and pulled a ring out of his cowboy boot, which is an interesting choice. And then he told me how much. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't say that. That was my commentary. He told me how much I meant to him and how important life together would be. And they got married in August of 2015. And then in October of 2016, Emily found out that she was pregnant and they were overjoyed by the news. They were so excited, but then they started to worry that the baby would also be born with bladder extrophy. And Emily said, you know, the doctors, it's so rare that doctors don't have a lot of research. And so they didn't know if it was genetic. Right. Um, So they were really concerned, but they thought like, who better to take care of a baby with bladder extrophy than two people who have it. The possibility didn't stop them from wanting a family. It was a scary time until their 20-week scan, but then they found out that the baby's bladder was in the proper place and not outside the body. And so little Everly Grace was born perfectly healthy on May 23rd, 2017, and she's now a vibrant two-year-old. And the couple support other bladder extrophy sufferers by working with Courage to Shine, which is an organization that was founded to celebrate people who overcome birth defects. And Emily said, we try to advocate to teenagers, kids and adults with bladder extrophy that they're going to be all right. Because look at this, my birth defect led me to my greatest gift, Cameron. And then Cameron said, it's easy to get lost in the day-to-day of things, work, family stuff. But when I start to think about how we actually met and had this beautiful little girl, it just blows my mind. Aww. And that's my story. That's so sweet. I love that story. Yeah. It's just like a sweet story. So good. All right. Should we do something dumb and something we love? Let's do it. All right. You go first. Okay. So for something dumb... This week. Okay, so last night my son had, this was not done. He had his little um, school 
musical yeah it's real cute it was it's called the day the crayons oh, quit I love that book. which is so cute yeah but the dumb thing is we had to make these crayon costumes oh, for their kids <laughs> parents have to pitch in i get right. it but they gave us these instructions on you know how to make these like paper crayon hats and i thought i did what the instructions said uh-huh. but then um you know, it wasn't the best hat, but my son was like, I don't think mine looks like what the other kids are going to look like. And oh. I was like, I'm pretty sure it's, this is what the directions say. Yeah. And then all day long before the play, I was like second guessing myself and feeling terrible. Like, oh my God, like right. he's going to be so embarrassed when he goes and like, yeah, everybody has these little... like professional looking crayon hats <laughs> and my kids looks dumb and I'm the worst and I'm a dumb parent. And I can't do, like, just feeling like a piece of shit. But then when I got there, I was like, dude, everybody's costumes look dumb. (laughs) We're all just parents trying to, like, get it together. You know? And it was, like, it was really funny. It was awesome. I loved, and when I saw, like, costumes that didn't look that great, I wasn't looking at it, like, judging them. I was just, I looked at it like, hell yeah. You're you're my people. Yeah. Like, I mean, right? (laughs) Am I right with these hats? So it's, like, a mishmash of crazy crayon costumes. And it just made me feel like it's so dumb the pressure that we put on ourselves you know to be the perfect parents and have these like perfect costumes for something that they're gonna wear for like one hour and And then never again yeah it's just parents and we all love whatever they do like none of us care if they're like this person's hat doesn't look like that person we're all just like we're just there to watch our kids sing and it's cool And then the other thing that is dumb is that they sang. And when I say dumb, it's just because I have a cold, cold heart and I don't appreciate <laughs> feeling things. But they sang in like they all dressed as crayons and they sang true colors. <gasps> and my heart can take it. <laughs> Why would you do that? It was the sweetest thing ever. Oh, oh my and God. It was little, so great. Little eight-year-old voices. Little chipmunk voices. Oh my gosh. So I guess that's also what I love. I love the fact that it was the cutest play show yeah. musical it was adorable the kids are all adorable and the parents it was just like a good night and also my son's teacher is so amazing and she like wrote each kid this like well thought out thank you notes and Aww. telling them like you know thanks for being such a great student and oh it was just such a good night yeah and you know what i mean and um so Parents, let's all just appreciate each other other and give each other a break. (laughs) Yes. And give ourselves a break. That is. Um, Okay. So my dumb thing and the thing I love is also a parenting fail. But not, I mean, not that you had a parenting fail. Mine is a parenting fail. No, I mean, my hat looked dumb. I mean, it looked dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this is, I hope this, that you guys take it the way that I found it. Um, I took Max out to dinner as my three-year-old. So cute. And and we were at Melton's. Do you know Melton's? Yeah. Which is like a little neighborhood pub. And he, we're sitting in a booth and he's sitting next to me and he's kind of like laying on the booth, like just meowing around. And I'm like looking at my phone for something. And then I hear him like, meow, meow, mom, meow, meow. And I Aww. look over and he has his penis out. <gasps> and I... Max! Laughed. I was like, I couldn't <laughs> because I was so surprised. It was like, you know, when people would do the like finger hole and you, you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm talking about? What is, do you see what I'm doing? I'm doing the gesture. Yeah. Where it, it was like, like major an look. okay sign. Yeah. It was like a major look. Like that's what it felt like. Like I was not expecting it at all because he has never 
Like, he's never taken his penis out in public. Like, he's not, yeah. he's not that kid. And it was like he did it just to make me laugh. Oh, my God. Which I really appreciate as a comedian. But then I was like, oh, my God, put your penis away. <laughs> like, put your penis away. <laughs> and he was just like, why? And I was like, oh, my, I've probably never told you you can't take your dick out yeah. in public. <laughs> that is a parenting fail. That was a parenting fail because Ben was like, yeah, we've never had to tell him that before. <laughs> and so he was like, why not? I was like, well, I mean, it's just like your private parts and we just don't do it. You can do it at home. And then and ben, and Max was like, like in my room? I was like, yeah, take your dick out of your room. I didn't say dick, but I was like, yes, you can take your penis out in your room if you want. And he was, I was like, or in the bathroom. And that's it. And he was like, what about in the TV room? I was like, fine. And then we got home and Ben was like, you no! can't <laughs> But I was like, oh my God, I'm raising a frat boy. You are. <laughs> Take it out in the backyard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's like, hey, mom, look at this. Like oh when you're God. on the train, if you're on a plane, take it out. Who cares? Uh, just, just don't take it out at restaurants. Just not at a neighborhood restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Oh man. All right. Well, thank you guys. Yeah. For another great episode. It was, yeah. I like this one. I like this one. I, I think, think it was great. Really good. Um, we're approaching the holidays, so everybody have a wonderful. Yeah, this Holiday actually when this comes season. out, it will have just been Thanksgiving. So I want to say you had a good one. We are grateful for you guys, and we're, I'm grateful for you, Jen. Yeah, this no, is I'm like, grateful for you. I'm so glad to have a, like, be doing something creative that is fulfilling and exciting with a partner who is, like, equally invested. And yes. it has been such a joy to do this with you. Same, same. Same, same. Ditto. Jen Ditto. is looking over here. She's rolling her eyes. No, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> She's, like, stopping sincere. Like, oh, jerk off motion, jerk off motion. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, so Jen, you. put your dick back in your put pants. Put your dick in your pants. <laughs> <laughs> this keeps happening to me. <laughs> is it me? <laughs> it's you. Um, oh my god. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, keep and, your dicks in your pants and, and uh, get out there and go do something dumb for love. Dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum da